Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, I'm David Kern. I'm Heidi White. And I'm Tim McIntosh. And you are listening to Close Reads, a podcast for the incurable reader. And Tim's back! Hey, Tim's back. <laughs> What's going on, Tim? Hey, thanks David. for Thanks Hi, for being Heidi. back. Thanks for having how, me How back. are you? I'm, I'm, it's a complicated answer. The short <laughs> Sorry answer for asking. Is, no, 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 it's fine. If, if, if you'll just accept it's complicated, maybe I could leave it at that. Hey, man, I accept it's complicated yeah. almost all the time yeah. because life is complicated. For sure. Word. So we are here to discuss a new book. We're here to discuss Walker Percy's novel, the moviegoer. This is uh, his debut novel. It was first published in 1961. And then it went on to win the U.S. National Book Award. Uh, and then if you want to look it up on Wikipedia, there's all kinds of things that it lists, like how Time included the novel in its Time 100 Best English Language Novels from 1923 to 2005. All kinds of great uh, factoids about this book. And of course, Walker Percy went on to be one of the preeminent novelists of the 20th century, um, one of the preeminent tastemakers, uh, he discovered novels like um, A Confederacy of Dunces, which we're going to read next year, and was just a key key influencer. And of course, he is one of the most important Catholic novelists in the latter half of the 20th century, too, picking up where Flannery O'Connor and Graham Greene left off, so to speak. Um, so we're going to talk about this novel, which most people have complicated feelings about, speaking of things being complicated. Uh, Tim, I want to start here. You've read this book before. So I want to ask you uh, where you met this book and the degree to which your feelings about this book are complicated. And then we'll ask Heidi, and then we'll talk about some of the other responses we have. And then, uh, full disclosure, what I want to do in this episode, just get this out of the way as a little introduction. I want to spend some time talking about um, y'all's advice on how to approach this book, because it's different than a lot of other books. And we're getting some comments about about that fact, about how the experience is a little bit different. So let's talk about our experiences first, and then let's talk about how, you know, your advice for how we might want to approach it. And then we'll talk about uh, some characters and passages and things like that that might be helpful. So Tim, where did you meet this book? Let's talk about your experience. I had never heard of Walker Percy until a professor that I really loved, Dr. Whit Jones, introduced me to it in his, I think my junior year in college, um, and I struggled. He had us read kind of a, um, I think it was The Last Gentleman, which I think is the yeah. book after this one. And I struggled with that book a lot, mm. but I kind of devoted myself because Dr. Jones was so important to me. I devoted myself mm. to curating and developing my taste for Walker Percy. And I really, I came to appreciate him. And now having come back to the moviegoer after having not read Walker Percy for quite a while, I had forgotten how influential Walker Percy has been in my life. Like mm. really, really influential. He's not, 
I like reading Cormac McCarthy's books more and Tolstoy's books more, but as far as formative impact from an author, he's probably top three, really influential for me. So I'm recording here in our soon to be open bookstore. And I just realized that over my shoulder, one of these areas here, this is the Walker Percy section. It's nice. Somewhere in here is P. So while you were talking, I was realizing that. Also, if you hear more noise than normal, it's because I'm not in the studio. I'm in the, the bookshop. Um, but yeah. So looks Walker Percy somewhere over there. Yeah. I'll give you guys the video tour later. Can't wait. Um, my sister did, just painted a giant mural on one of the walls. So I'll have to show you that. So, okay. Did you, when you first read it though, Tim, you, wait, wait, wait do you know, how long ago did you first read the, the movie Gore? A long time, 20 years. Okay, and you've read it, this is your third time? Second time, second time. So you haven't read it since then? Correct. I've read but everything else everything that he's published, okay. but, not, okay. but this is only my second read of mo- the and, movie goer. And you read The Gentleman first. The Last Gentleman. The Last Gentleman first. And as you said, that was his second novel. So at what point in reading Walker Percy's canon did you read the movie goer? Did I miss that? Probably third or fourth. Okay, okay. Yeah. Did, you have, did you like it? on when you read it that first time better um than those other books did you have a, did you have less no. of a difficult time you still had a difficult time when you yeah, first read it i did okay i did i i think it is um it's the maybe the most decorated of his books because it's the national book yeah. award winner mm-hmm. i don't think it's his best book i don't think it's his top in his top 3 hmm. that's my opinion what what do you think is his best novel I, my favorite is Lancelot, which is his last okay. novel. And I would probably say The Last Gentleman or The Second Coming as... Is Lancelot last? That. I think so. I think it's his last novel. I thought, I thought Thanatos was last. Oh, maybe it is. The Thanatos Syndrome. I thought maybe it was written it in the late 80s. It doesn't really matter. Uh, <laughs> but Lancelot is a very interesting book. Very interesting book. A yeah. lot of people think Love in the Ruins is his best mm book of fiction. And I think it's only loosely fiction from what I understand. Uh, Heidi, let's talk about your experience because two questions. Have you ever read Walker Percy before? And then have you ever read this book before? So I get told all the time that I'm a very well-read person and I'm learning this year on Close Reads that I'm absolutely not because all these books... If you ever want to feel like you're not a well-read person, open a bookstore (laughs) and you realize... (laughs) That there might be 5,000 books in the shop and you have not read many of yeah, them. Yeah, no, it's I, the proportion of books that I have not read is much greater yeah. than the. Me too. Um, so, no, <laughs> Me too. I've never read this novel before. The only Walker Percy that I have read is Love in the Ruins, which I loved. Um, and okay. so, and he, it's one of those, he's one of those authors that I've, you know, meant to make my way through his canon. And so I keep putting it off because I have all these other things to read yeah. and I'm really excited about reading him. Uh, you know, I mean, we yeah. all, we all love those mid-century Catholic novelists. And so I am, I'm hundred percent on board <laughs> yeah. with Walker Percy. I just haven't read much to my shame. I'm getting an education. So some friends and I get together every Sunday night to watch movies. We call it Sunday streamers. And the it's we have this thing where one of the guys created an app and the app has different genres so we we, we separated out movies into like eight genres and we take turns it t- being the person who gets to choose the movie for the week and uh when you get there that night 
you have to spin the app. Well, really, you press the button and it spins and it settles on a genre. And you have to choose a movie from that genre. And we always talk about how um, you have to come prepared. But one of the ways that we all kind of prepare is the idea of like filling in gaps, right? So trying to either fill in a gap that you have in movies or you know that the rest of the group has. And it's just, it's an interesting way of thinking about how you choose something. Like, I know I have this big gap. So we watched Some Like It Hot this last Sunday because a lot of guys hadn't seen it. It's like, I know I, one guy said he'd never seen a John Wynn movie. And so we were like, this is a John Wynn, we got to watch a John Wynn movie for this guy. This is a gap. And I, one of the reasons I was very intrigued at the prospect of reading the moviegoer on this show, uh, you know, together is because I feel like he is one of those essential writers mm. who a lot of people feel like they should have read more of, including the three of us probably, but it's a gap. Mm. And in some ways I love the idea of, you know, can close reads partly can, like, can we collectively fill each other's gaps <laughs> or fill gaps right. together? Um, and so I I'm think this is one of those that. books. Yeah. And this is one of those books that is, it's difficult and strange and very, you know, very unusual. And so I would say that it gets left out. It, it, it's a gap for good reason, if that makes sense. Yeah. For a lot, for a lot of people. David, what's your first read of the movie goer? So I, I think I read it in college and then I read it again, you know, another number of years later, but I didn't read it. The second time I read it, it wasn't like a super close reading where I read it. I read it over a long period of time type of situation. You know, I would pick it up, read a few chapters, read 20 pages, put it down, go read one of my spy novels or something, crime novel, come back, you know, I probably read it over again over a year even. And it's not a long book. So it was a sort of um, incomplete experience. So I'm excited to, to read it with you guys. Um, I actually taught it six or seven, six or seven years ago to seniors in high school as part of a modern lit class. And we did the, um, the first semester we did a lot of the, um, you know, what you could nicely call the, the nihilist writers of the first part of the 20th century. A lot of Camus, Sartre, Hemingway, people like that. Although Kafka, we read Kafka. Yeah. yeah. And then we came back and we, we, in the second semester, we read Graham Greene, Walker Percy, Flannery O'Connor, Wendell Berry, people who were were responding to what was being written in the first part of the century. Um, And I think this is a very interesting novel in terms of how it responds to what the world was, what was happening in the world and the way the world was responding to what was happening uh, around the time of the first two world wars. I think this book is responding directly to that. Um, Heidi, do you find this a difficult book to read? No, but I, and I, I kind of feel like I'm missing something. Cause I'm like, this just seems like a book to me. <laughs> <laughs> Heidi, you don't, the, 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 the narr- so I'll just tell you what I find hard about it and tell me, um, if you struggled all with that, the first, the section that we read, I repeatedly had to kind of backtrack and say, wait, are we, ta- who are we talking to? Who's Binks talking to? Is he talking mm-hmm. to Kate here? Yeah. Is he talking to his aunt here? Like, I feel like the plot points are so, um, they're so submerged within our main character's consciousness that I often lose track of like, where we're even located yeah. physically. Yeah. Do you, did you struggle with that, Heidi? Um, I think I had to reorient myself a couple of times. Yes. But yeah. when people, so I had been told that this was a difficult book. Um, and so I think I expected some kind of like 
um, <laughs> modern with like a capital Finnegan's M kind of, yes, something like yeah, that. Like I a was, Joyce. Yes, yeah. Joyce. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> like a stream of consciousness. Like I'm going to have to figure out, you know, no, no punctuation marks. Lots of, I, I, I was yeah. expecting that. And since it wasn't that, um, well, and also I probably have some kind of, you know, tormented psychosis that's like yeah this just feels like the inside of my brain too so um <laughs> right um yeah, yeah i i can that that part of it i, I think i can certainly is, understand it takes ahead, some reorienting ahead. yeah yeah that's all i can understand it takes some reorienting to the plot and to the characters and he does there's not a lot of background it's kind of you kind of like thrown into this uh southern family structure um and you're trying to catch up to that <laughs> yeah. along the way yeah. Does it did, did when I was reading it kept reminding me of PG Woodhouse like like a southern american PG Woodhouse because yes. it's you know the the whole family structure with the aunt and you know these oversized figures who his view of them may or may not be realistic it reminded me of of that dynamic in the Woodhouse novels although the comedy is a little more dry. Yes, but <laughs> it's actually British. really hilarious. That okay, my favorite I laughed out loud a couple of times as I was reading it <laughs> on page six. Yeah, I think that's the idea. I know. Page six when he says, he's talking about how, where he lives in, um, in Gentilly. And then he says, but whenever I try to live there, meaning with his aunt and uncle, I find myself first in a rage during which I develop strong opinions on a variety of subjects and write letters to editors. <laughs> then in a depression during which I lie rigid as a stick for hours, staring straight up at the plaster medallion in the ceiling of my bedroom. And I loved that sentence because I feel like it kind of encapsulates the, the undulations of this man's inner life. Like, mm. Mm. and it Good has word. this, um, uh, wry humor to it the letters to editors part in the strong opinions that's so funny but then it ends in this yeah. note of despair and 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 so i just thought that that sentence was a great kind of encapsulation of of the novel so far hmm. tim do you find it as funny yeah there it's really funny at parts and very i think one of the strengths of the book is how ob, how he has an observational eye that is uh remarkable and some of the mm -hmm. writing is really beautiful i think the writing there are glimpses of the beauty of this writing in this section it becomes more beautiful i think yeah. in subsequent sections yeah more pronounced yeah do you have do you have something in mind specifically already i do i'll read one section it seemed like maybe you had something ready to go there <laughs> um i really like the bird I, song in the background tim it's so lovely yeah, yeah. oh i hope it's not just I hope it's not disturbing to listeners. Uh, hang on. It's one of the more uh, pleasant sounds mm -hmm. you could you could hear in the background. Could be worse. You could have like a giant eighteen wheeler blowing a horn. We've been or through a lot of background noises with Tim. Yeah. There was yeah. the dank basement months. <laughs> yeah. And there was like the the rebuilding of the home. <laughs> yeah, that's true. But what I love, you guys, is we've worked through it. We've it's <laughs> yeah, made it exactly. stronger. Yeah. It's, I think it's true. It's galvanized us as a team. Here's what I would like to read. Page 14 okay. in my version at the bottom. So this is him. One of the only plot points in this book, in this section, is yeah. he walks to see his aunt. He talks to his aunt. That's, about, <laughs> like, that's what happens in the first yep. section. Yep. This is part of the walk. I alight at Esplanade in a smell of roasting coffee and creosote and walk up Royal Street. The lower quarter is the best part. 
the ironwork on the balconies sag like rotten lace. Little French cottages hide behind high walls. Through deep sweating carriageways, one catches glimpses of courtyards gone to jungle. Having mm. been to New Orleans, I'm like that's a that's a perfect glimpse of New Orleans. What page was that on? Fourteen, 14. top of fifteen. Did you already say that and I missed it? I did. And I'm a little disappointed, David. Well, we might have to work through something else now. Yeah. All the galvanization, all the galvanization has just gone to smoke now. Well, you know, it's two steps forward, baby step back. Right. He was distracted by the search. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah. We're going to talk about the search in a little bit. So you mentioned just a second ago, you used the phrase, one of the only plot points in this book. And then you subsequently summarized that plot point as he went to his aunt's house. Yeah, right. (laughs) And there were a couple comments on the Facebook page about how, you know, it's something to the effect of, I usually like more plot in my books. And uh, I am totally okay with that, with that, uh, with that take and that having that kind of a, or because you like plot, you're having a difficult time with this book. So given that, uh, let's talk about the idea of like some advice on how to approach this book, because that's, uh, the people that post that on on Facebook are not the first people to have a problem with that. I think people have been having a problem with the plotlessness, if you will, since 1961 <laughs> when it was released. So, would you say that, given that it seems like, well, first of all, let's let's let me ask this: Do you agree that this book is plotless in that way? And then, secondly, do you think that um, it demands a different, you know, sort of approach to to it than most other books like do you need to sort of reconfigure your expectations or the way you think about reading when you read a book like this Heidi what do you think about that um (laughs) (laughs) I thought you were asking Tim I am so ready for this Um, you should have seen her face guys it looked like she was like saw like a four-humped camel walk by (laughs) um I think that there is a plot to a person's inner life there Mm. And so I think that that's part of the um, part of learning how to read novels like this is knowing that the development of a human soul and it in an inner commentary is a story and mm-hmm. and it's a story worth paying attention to and noticing uh, because where when the outside life is just as he calls it the everydayness the ordinary human life uh, when that doesn't seem very exciting there's still an unfolding narrative of uh, the becoming of a human that's always going on in the inner life and and I I think it's a gift and a privilege to have a glimpse into that, whether that's in relationship or in a novel. Mm. Tim. I I think a strategy for reading the book is um, to soak in the descriptions and the details rather than what I sometimes do which is gloss those descriptions because I'm ready to get to the next, like a turn in the story. Like, yeah. I mean, I really think that um, what is going to happen with Binks, our main character in this story is so it is happening deep inside of him. Yeah. And the things that he looks at and, um, the ways that he thinks about things and the enemies that he is 
fighting against, those are like the main action, if you will, of the story, rather than uh, is Reskolnikov going to get away with murder right, when yeah. he speaks to the police officer. Yeah, we, th- we think so much about books in terms of, and rightly so, uh, uh, in terms of what does this person have to overcome? Like, what do they want and what is it they're going to have to overcome to, to achieve it, right? That's the sort of simple way of thinking about it. And this, the things they want and what they're going to have to overcome are so different in this book than, than other books. It's, you know, you're kind of trained or conditioned, that word maybe is the wrong word, but to, to search for the, the enemy. Yeah. When you, and even if I'm using that word loosely, like the enemy could be, you know, Darcy and Elizabeth need mm-hmm. to get together despite what seems like, well, actually in that case, they just are enemies, but, but you know, sometimes enemies using that word, it's, I'm using that word loosely, but here the sort of enemy, the evil, the, the, the opposition, would you say that it's, it's interior that, that, or is it, is it too simply put to suggest that it's an, that there is an opposition? What do you think of that, Heidi? Is that one way of looking at it or is that an yeah, I think it's a great way of looking at it. I think there's such a, th- every story has a monster to it, right? The whole point of a story yeah. is to yeah. identify and just, and kill a monster. Um, and modern books in particular, 20th century novels are, are interested in who the monster is in a way that earlier literature uh, just accepts, right? Mm-hmm. Um, there's, yeah, a there's a point. bad guy and a good guy in an old kind of novel. And it's really clear that society, how society has defined that. Um, and the 20th century novel is really interested in, in, in that question, um, mm-hmm. who mm-hmm. is the monster in a story? And, um, yeah. and I think it's a really good question, uh, for the 20th century to ask because there were so many monsters in the world. It was a time when so many, so many people died yeah. and so much changed in, uh, on a global scale. Uh, and so, so quickly, yeah. yes, so, so quickly and, 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 and I think in the 20th century, and I think we're still in this place today in society that, the monsters were expected to have been the heroes, right? Stalin comes along and says, I'm the hero mm. in the story, right? And then yeah. he ends up being the monster. And that yeah. happened Hitler in says, Germany. I'm going to free you. Yes, yeah. exactly. So there's all these big claims of a brave new world uh, and a new world order, and none of it worked. And so the novelists are exploring that and they're looking for monsters within and they're trying to identify monsters without it's not as simple as it was during the king arthur days you know which there's plenty of complexity there too but not as much in the books and so uh, i think that that that's one of the big questions of this novel and that's something i think that our hero or our protagonist is always asking and feeling uncertain of where can i put my full weight down like if i want to be a good man if i am on a search I, yeah. whatever I'm, I don't even know what I'm looking for and I don't know what the obstacles are on my path, but I want to feel like I'm on some kind of quest. And, and mm. that is one of the questions of the novel and one of the points of confusion yeah. in the novel intentionally. So. Yeah. Do you, do you, it, it seems like in some ways this is a novel about degrees of self-awareness, mm. like modern, the 20th century novel is so often it's about, point of view and perspective which is essentially an exploration in a character's self-awareness it's the novelist is able to sort of play with 
the notion of how much does the character know about themselves? How much are they actually wise about their own motivations and things like that? Do you think that this is a book that part of the disorientation comes from the fact that it seems to me the character is going in and out of wisdom, if that's, I don't know if that's the right word, but in and out of any kind of actual ability to identify the degree to which he is self-aware. Like sometimes he feels self-aware, but it seems like maybe he's lying to himself. And then sometimes it's like, yes, he's really in tune with himself there. And the, the waves that that Timmy used the words undulation, I think, or Heidi, maybe it was Heidi did. Yeah. Use the, there's these waves of self-awareness that wash over him. And then sometimes he thinks he's being self-aware, but no wave actually hit him. And it seems like that's one of the reasons why this book is disorienting Mm. to me. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. That's insightful, David. There's no question there. It's just, am I, am I wrong? No, I (laughs) I think think you're right. right. Hey, I have a question. Um, I think it's more for Heidi since this is her first trip through the book. Heidi, can you share your first impressions of the aunt? Oh, that's a great question. Uh, So I, I too, like David was, I just saw aunt Agatha from Bernie Wooster (laughs) the whole time. Um, So, and I, I feel like we saw her so much through his eyes until we get to the conversation in which she really uh, wants him to, um, she talks to him about moving in and she tries to tell him like, you should become a doctor, blah, blah, blah. Um, and so, and at that point I felt like she kind of falls into place for me a little bit. Um, instead of being a caricature, she becomes, she, she became humanized for me in that conversation. Um, and, um, She's, she's, I'm interested in her. What I see in her is this, uh, hmm, let me think of how to say this embodiment of a cultural ideal, like a highbrow kind of cultural ideal. She's a reader. She's interesting to talk to. um, But it's almost like she, she got plays, to, she appreciates fine music. She sure does. And, and she <laughs> wants, and she's, and she appreciates and accepts kind of the cultural and social uh, conventions of her time and has succeeded in yeah. achieving uh, this social success, this cultural success. And then that's kind of where she stops. Right. So the limitation of the aunt is the same limitation of uh of a cultural ideal that fails to engage in the depths of the spiritual quest. There's that line on uh, 23 where he says, he's talking about the room that, you know, he says the room is a beautiful room and by every right, a cheerful room with its walls of books, its Bokhara glowing like a jewel, its blackening portraits, the prisms of the chandelier wink red in the firelight scattered over the satin wood table is the usual litter of quarterlies and rough paper weeklies, and as always, the great folio, The Life of the Buddha. My aunt likes to say she is an Episcopalian by emotion, a Greek by nature, and a Buddhist by choice. And I love, like, I just love, like, the description of the room tells us a lot about her. Like, he just gives us what her room is like. And then he gives us what she says about herself, which may or may not be true, but definitely tells us a lot about what she thinks of herself. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, of course, you get that in contrast with her husband, his uncle, who also is this sort of idealized figure and and the the problem is is are the ideals just the way he views them banks views them or are they really this way and i i i love the way the novel kind of 
constantly is asking us whether we can trust him in terms of his perspectives and how he thinks about himself and all that. So then my question is through these first these first pages do you how how trustworthy do you think our narrator is? And I don't mean in the sense that like don't believe anything he says this is an unreliable narrator. I just mean in terms of like as a person in terms of what he's his consciousness his awareness do we do we think we should we should spend a lot of time worrying about whether he's right or not? <laughs> mm. I think like every novel in which the narrator is uh, um, becoming something in which her, his perceptions are the plot points, so to speak, uh, a great author like Walker Percy is careful to give us the clues embedded within his false perceptions that still give us an opportunity to have a true perception. Um, huh. And but it isn't always coming from his opinions necessarily, or his own assessment. Well, I don't think we have to take any of his assessments at face value, but I think we should rely on. Um, but I think Walker Percy, as I said, just gives us enough to kind of form our own true perceptions of the of this situation. And as you said, the mm. aunt is um, she has this cultural veneer right and uncle has like this market veneer and this like traditional masculinity kind of thing and 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 our narrator is like there's something missing Mm -hmm. there's something there's something in in this great achievement in this wealth and in this beauty and i think it's really important that they're so successful um in the highest upper echelons of american society in the south there's still there's still a missing nobody's on the search Right. And that, that is, that's his big problem. Yeah. That's what's at stake. Right. One of the things that we try to avoid doing on this podcast is biographizing novels. Like, you know, it's important for us to let novels stand on their own and not say, oh, you know, Hemingway wrote this because uh, he was actually struggling with his own masculinity and, you know, (laughs) <laughs> we try to not do that. And now I'm going to kind of like violate that. Is that going to break the rule? It's so personal. I think all of Walker Percy's books are so personal. So you can kind of see characters from his real life um, step into the pages of his novel. So just mm. a, a little bit about him. Uh, a little bit about Walker Percy. Uh, born, of course, in the South. It's a very Southern book. Uh, and had a couple of like really signal events when he is a young man, age 13, uh, his father, who is an extremely well thought of member of their town. Um, I believe he was a lawyer, wealthy, uh, one afternoon at 3 PM, his father went upstairs and he shot himself, committed suicide. A couple years later, Walker Percy and a friend of his are returning home and they're crossing a bridge and there's been a car accident and uh, Walker Percy and his friend, you know, stop on the bridge and they're looking down at the police trying to kind of amend the situation of this car crash that happened down in the river below the bridge. And Walker Percy discovers it was his mother who it was an accident, but his mother like drove over this bridge and she died below this bridge. I mean, just so you can imagine these two incredibly formative events, a suicide and an accidental 
death of his parents. And Walker Percy went to live, or maybe his, his uncle Will came to live with him to take care of himself and his brothers. And I see his uncle Will, who was really formative for him, as kind of, I, I really read his aunt as kind of having a similar sort of role in his life that Uncle Will had in his life. So um, a really kind of like philosophical, a strong philosophical sense of right and wrong um, involved, both his father and his uncle were involved in the civil rights movements in the South, like by all accounts. His uncle was a poet. Yeah, his uncle was a poet, published author. So by all accounts, Lawyer. really men that were worthy of esteem. But there's also, as Heidi has mentioned about the aunt, there's something that's not, that does not quite work. There's something going on in those relationships between Uncle Will and the real Walker Percy and his aunt and Binks Bowling. Something is not connecting up. Um, And I think that is going to be figuring out what, we think about the aunt is going to be a real crucial aspect to reading this book. Mm. Um, his grandfather also committed suicide. Yeah. Yeah. So he had both his grandfather and his father both committed suicide. And so that was one of those things that I think, you know, how did, how that doesn't hover over your, your life the whole time. Yeah. It's probably, probably, a probably a pretty profound thing and it shows up in his work. Can I say one more thing about that? Um, The opening quote, anyone Mm -hmm. who knows me knows that I was really happy about the opening quote because it's from Soren Kierkegaard. (laughs) The specific character of despair is precisely this. It is unaware of being despair. When Percy is a young man, he trains as a doctor he begins working with cadavers as part of his medical training and he um, gets tuberculosis. Tuberculosis, um, especially when he contracted it, is really, really dangerous and there's no real treatment for it aside from clean, cold, fresh air. So he went to a sanatorium. He's really limited. He can't do much at all. He just has to rest and breathe the air. And with his grandfather's suicide in his background, with his father's suicide in his background, Percy's thinking, so am I the next to go? You know, am I kind of like predestined for this sort of demise? And what he does while in the sanatorium trying to recover from his uh, tuberculosis is he begins reading authors, authors like, Soren Kierkegaard and Dostoevsky, they're probably the two most formative authors, like 19th century existentialists, one from Denmark, one from Russia. And I think that that kind of vision for what a flourishing, what, what, what life is about begins to take hold during that time in the sanatorium. Hmm. Hmm. One of the things that I was thinking about in this book in terms of how you approach it this word kept coming to mind and a lot of times we think of this has to do with the plotlessness thing too i guess but it ties into what you're saying we think about books in terms of 
what happens or a journey or something they're trying to accomplish. And I kept thinking that this book, more than like a journey's a hero's journey type story, it's like a vibe. Yeah. And I, and I think if you read this book and you're just like, I'm going to read this book for the vibe. Mm. I think that kind of frees your imagination up a little bit because it allows you to sort of like think about how, you know, like there's this tone, there's this mood, there's this voice. And then you can like take these things that you're saying about Percy's life and the experiences that he had, and you can kind of just let it all coalesce. And that, that all coalesces into this vibe. Yeah. And I remember teaching this book with high school seniors who were fairly well read for high school seniors, right? They'd read a lot of the classics and they'd read some Kierkegaard, Dostoevsky and stuff. And I think when you kind of let a book like this be a vibe and you don't try to like, I guess when you just kind of like let yourself linger in the vibe, so to speak, yeah. then I think all those things start to show up mm. because you stop looking for what's the next plot point that's going to happen. What's he really trying to accomplish? And maybe that's an unsatisfying experience for a lot of people, but I think um, it, it might, it might be one of those ex- ways of reading Maybe it's not, maybe it's not easy to read. Maybe it's not a page turner type of approach, but sort of letting it be a vibe and lingering in the vibe. Yeah. I think, I think the best way to put it is it draws those things out for you. It draws, oh, I can see, you know, I can, there's a little dash of Dostoevsky here. There's a little dash of Kierkegaard. There's a little dash of, of Percy's own experiences in his own life. There's like a little Joyce in the voice, right? <laughs> Uh, yeah. Nice, David. But I, it it came out, and then I realized <laughs> that was either unfortunate or just really Very fortunate. fortunate. I don't know what. Great. Um, but I, I, for some reason, that's been helpful for me to think about it that way. Um, that what I'm getting is like I'm getting a vibe, and I'm not going to make the book do anything else other than be a vibe. And now that's a super simplistic way of thinking about I think it. It's a great but I think way it's of an entryway. Yeah, great way of thinking about it because it doesn't make me. It doesn't. It allows me to be like when Dostoevsky or Kierkegaard show up, it's it's like it's knocking on the door rather than hitting me over the head. Yeah. Right. Because it's not taking me out of some plot that I'm trying to get to. Whereas if I'm reading some book and it feels like all of a sudden Kierkegaard shows up and it takes me out of the plot, then I'm like annoyed. Right. I'm annoyed yeah. that I don't get to know what the next thing is that happens in this adventure this guy's going on. But if it's a vibe, yeah. If it's like jazz or something, and all of a sudden, you know. Miles Davis turn, brings up a little Mozart for a second, and I know Mozart pretty well. Then you start making these connections, which in which enlivens the experience. I think a little rather than detracting from the experience. Um, so I've mixed a lot of metaphors there, <laughs> but what you were saying there brought that to mind for me because I love it when Kierkegaard when I'm reading Walker Percy, and all of a sudden something from Kierkegaard shows up, and it's like, hey, that's Kierkegaard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, you don't have to know that it's Kierkegaard for it to be mm-hmm. interesting, but if you do you're going to notice there's going to be other references and other allusions and other things that Percy's drawing on that you do know. You don't have to know everything. I don't know. I don't even know Kierkegaard that well, hmm. but I know him a little bit. So when he shows up or when we having just read crime and punishment, it, it shows up. But I, but like to me, it's jazz when Kierkegaard, Dostoevsky and PG Woodhouse can all show up at the Woodhouse. same time. Yes. And Shakespeare yeah. can yep. all show up at the same time. And that's like evidence of a mind and imagination that's on fire. Yeah. And that's inviting us into the, the search the show yeah. into the search yeah. yeah and and i just I, I i think that there's not a lot of writers that can create a vibe that's as alive as what 
Percy does. Mm. There's other authors, you know, how people try to imitate Hemingway all the time, and very few people actually manage to do it. Mm-hmm. People try to imitate O'Connor, very few people actually manage to do it. I think Walker Percy has these, these, these rare writers who try to imitate the vibeness of his work, and it's so like it's not alive like this is. Um, and I think that reading it in that perspective is a little bit freeing personally. He, he combines things that so rarely go together. He has... Yeah, yeah. that's a good way of putting it, yeah. A, a, a real medical diet. He, he has the ability to perceive in the way that a medical professional diagnoses. Like he sees... He ta- I remember there's this one section that we... That's interesting. Um, he talks about, um, I think, saliva as kind of like the clear fluid of a, of a well-working machine. Hmm. And, he's, and he, he'll notice pupils dilate and things like that, things that are like something that, that a doctor would recognize. And at the same time that he notices that, he will kind of swing up into the metaphysical and he'll quote Kierkegaard. And he does so. Be, and, and I actually think that those two habits are both um, the ability to see the human being as an organism in an environment is key to like his vision of the world while Hmm. also recognizing how a human being cannot just be this organism within an environment. And so he Hmm. sees both of these things and he can't really, the, the, the question maybe the book is, am I going to be able to reconcile these two things? Mm-hmm. They're both true. Am I going to be able to reconcile them? Right. Go ahead, Heidi. No, Were you say I really just love that. The paradox. So many 20th century novelists take on the challenge of the contradictions and paradoxes of human existence. that question of how can we be an organization, an organism within an environment and yet be more than an organism within an environment? And how can we do that in a world that is no longer telling me the moral framework uh, through which I should see that contradiction and paradox? Um, And and I think that's the great strength of the 20th century novel. And I'm really curious your thoughts on his place amongst the Catholic novelists that are attempting to uh, kind of negotiate or advocate for a return to uh a robust spiritual experience uh, that's real and not imagined um, while still acknowledging the despair and the problems in modern life. And I think that's, I'm, I have so much respect for these Catholic novelists who d- attempted to do this, but who maintained their place amongst the great novelists because they didn't simplify the problem, but they still mm-hmm. advocated for some kind of robust moral and spiritual life in the midst of crumbling modernity. Um, does he do that in this novel? And how does he rank amongst them? I'm curious, since I, especially since I'm not as familiar with him. Mm-hmm. And maybe that's a question for later in the series, but I'm, I would like to talk about that. Yeah. What do you think, wanna, David? I think the degree to which he um, approaches the finer points of theology or begins to try to represent them in his fiction deepens as his career goes on. 
Like, I think he's a little more direct about that. But I think he is in this book. Um, I think when he talks about the search and the conclusions that he ultimately draws, I think that um, about the search itself and then what you're searching for, I think are um, deeply Catholic. Um, and mm-hmm. I think that we'll get, we can talk about that later. Um, I think, I think probably Graham, Graham Greene is the more accomplished novelist, but I don't know that he's necessarily that much of a better writer, if that makes sense. Mm. Um, I think that Percy knew how to, I mean, Percy had a unique American turn of, he had a unique, a uniquely American ability to turn a phrase that, that like you get that Green didn't have. Green was, you know, it was that came of different stock. <laughs> I think it shows up in their prose. What do you think, Tim? I think it's the right question to be asking about this book. We've talked about when we were talking about Hemingway, you know, he has a background in Catholicism and there's this question of, do we, does Hemingway think that we can go back in a way that I think that somebody, uh, I think that Brights had revisited, I think is advocating for kind of a return a going back. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think that we kind of all settled in one way or another on the idea that like, yeah, Hemingway probably, I just don't think he thinks we can go back. Right. So Percy's dealing with that same question as a Catholic in the 20th century. Can we return to this time where um, the cosmology of the universe was harmonious rather than chaotic, where human beings were perhaps estranged from their environment, but still this was a world that was made by God for them. I think Walker Percy is asking that same question. And I think he is very vocal in his answer, but it's not in this book. And so I, I, I want to talk about it also because I think he says there's an answer to that question. But I don't think it's in the movie goer. So I don't know. What do you want to do with that? Do you want to like talk about that in the conclusion of the book? Do you want to like do that as a Q&A? Do you want me to roll out with what I think he thinks now? <laughs> I save it. Let's, let's, let's yeah. not go too deep into it right now because I think there'll be some connections to be made as, as we go through. I do think, though, that like his relationship with his family and his aunt, you know, I think that's an objective correlative, if you will, for the disconnects that are occurring in in the world mm-hmm. um you know mm-hmm. if there's that line actually i think i, I think i have it bookmarked here it's on 26 um my aunt comes in smiling head to one hand what to head to one side hands outstretched and i whistle with relief and feel myself smiling with pleasure as i await one of her special kind of attacks attacks which are both playful and partly true that's a yeah good line there from uh, walker percy but then this next bit she calls me an ingrate a limb of Satan, the last and sorriest scion of a noble stock. What makes it funny is that it is true. <laughs> in a split second, I have forgotten everything, the years in gentility, even my search. As always, we take up again where we left off. This is where I belong, after all. And it's interesting the way, there's a, that's a very Woodhouse-y kind of like insult she throws at him, and mm-hmm. he's very self-deprecating in a sort of Bertie Wooster sort of way. But this sort of, you know, being the sorriest scion of noble stock and like, you know, what's happening with this lineage and what's his place in it. I think all of that is his place within the family is an objective correlative for the malaise that -hmm. so many people are feeling in the world at large, especially people who have come from um, 
faith for faith traditions. Um, and there's this sense where everyone's trying to decipher where they belong in that. Um, and I think so. I, so what I'm, what I'm trying to get out here is that I think he is presenting in very specific relationships that Binks has mirrors to larger problems. And I think he explores those larger spiritual problems and cultural problems to your point, Tim, throughout this novel. Yeah. And so I think if we keep an eye out for the way he writes about those relationships, some of what Heidi's asking comes into focus bit by bit, even if he then doesn't ultimately, you know, state it as clearly as he does in later, later works. Like I think we both said that Tim. he has a specific answer, but it's like yeah. it shows up more uh, specifically in other works of his. And in, and in his essays, I think oh, it shows sure. up yeah, yeah, really yeah. clearly in his essays. Yeah. Great essay on bourbon, by the way. Interested. Yeah. Um, David, can I say one more thing yes, about please. kind of like a tension within the book? We've spoken about his aunt, Heidi, I think is exactly right, that she's kind of a representative of a, of a cultural way of being. Um, I think because so many of our listeners have a home in the classical Christian tradition, I think this will be meaningful. There is, I think, within the classical tradition, a sort of um, sometimes easy, sometimes uneasy alliance between the pagans and the Christians within the tradition. Mm -hmm. So um, I can read Marcus Aurelius sometimes the great Roman emperor, and I read some of his writings about managing himself and about um, knowing himself. And I think, golly, it's just so, it, it, it really harmonizes in some ways so neatly with Christ's teachings about like, you know, like the kingdom of God is within you and these kind of exhortations to uh, listen with something deeper than your ears, you know? And so I, you can see that there's real, there can be real harmony there between, I'll, I'll call it the pagan wing and the Christian wing. I think this book is going to really press hard on the joint between those two wings of the tradition. And it's going to ask can those two things belong together inside of a single person and, and um, be harmonized? It's, it's interesting that he places this story in New Orleans because in a way, New Orleans is this confluence of the pagan and the Christian in a very deep yeah, way too. Yeah. Like you've got Great point. These, all these traditions within the culture um, and then you've also got this deeply French Catholic, you know, culture as well. Like it's known by the, you know, they, they organize things by the diocese and the parish and all that sort of stuff mm -hmm. to this day. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, and then at the same time you have it, you know, it's not just new Orleans. It's also the degree to which he brings pop culture into it. Right. So you've got the, and he's called the movie goer, right. And he's constantly referring to William Holden and all these yeah people like that. And so you've got, you know, on the one hand, these movie stars, on the other hand, these priests, you know, churches and movie theaters and all these different sorts of things coalescing into this one story. Yeah, that's a great point. His setting, his setting is uh, like a really great incarnation of this ass, this 
uh, tension within the novel. Well, and so in a way, it makes sense then that it becomes a novel. Like Heidi's brought it up a lot. There's this search, right? He talks about how there's this search, and so when the when you live in this place that is bound by the tension that you're describing there, you have to decipher. You have to work out what that tension means to you. How you live within that tension. Uh, do you have to? distance yourself from one side or the other do you have to go all in on the pagan and reject the christian or do you have to go all the, if you go all the way in on the christian do you have to reject the pagan yeah you know so that that's kind of part of what this search is Heidi, do you want to there's a couple passages here where he introduces this concept of the search mm-hmm. and one thing i love about percy is he creates this sort of complex vibe of a book right but then he's very specific about how this character is looking for something. Like he calls it the search. He doesn't actually hide the fact that this character is in a malaise and is looking for something to get out of that. He's very direct about that. Mm-hmm. So do you want to point out a couple of those? Can you read a couple of those passages, Heidi, to, to kind of help us clarify that? Absolutely. Um, there's a couple that are, to, to Tim's point that you made earlier, Tim, about description. He, yeah, what... What I've noticed about Walker Percy is he buries these profound philosophical statements in a descriptive paragraph, right? For example, I'm going to read, um, this isn't, this isn't my favorite one, but it is the first one on page, beginning on page 10. I'll read about a page. My peaceful existence in Gentilly has been complicated. This morning, for the first time in years, there occurred to me the possibility of a search. I dreamed of the war. No, not quite dreamed, but woke with the taste of it in my mouth. The queasy quince taste of 1951 in the Orient. I remembered the first time the search occurred to me. I came to myself under a chindalea, chindalea bush. Everything is upside down for me, as I shall explain later. What are generally considered to be the best times are for me the worst times, and that worst of times was one of the best. My shoulder didn't hurt, but it was pressed hard against the ground as if somebody sat on me. Six inches from my nose, a dung beetle was scratching around under the leaves. As I watched, there awoke in me an immense curiosity. I was on to something. I vowed that if I ever got out of this fix, I would pursue the search. Naturally, as soon as I recovered and got home, I forgot all about it. But this morning when I got up, I dressed as usual and began as usual to put my belongings into my pockets, wallet, notebook for writing down occasional thoughts, pencil, keys, handkerchief, pocket slide rule for calculating percentage returns on principle. They both looked unfamiliar and at the same time full of clues. I stood in the center of the room and gazed at the little pile, sighting through a hole made by thumb and forefinger. What was unfamiliar about them was that I could see them. They might have belonged to someone else. A man can look at this little pile on his bureau for 30 years and never once see it. It is as invisible as his own hand. Once I saw it, however, the search became possible. I bathed, shaved, dressed carefully, and sat at my desk and poked through the little pile in search of a clue, just as the detective on television pokes through the dead man's possessions using his pencil as a poker. Man, that's such a dense paragraph. It's, it, mm-hmm. it is 
I mean, it's an entire philosophical treatise on ontology and teleology and and, every, and this story, like buried in this description of stuff on his bureau that reminds him of this traumatic experience in war, because we clearly have somebody now with now that we understand it with PTSD, which simplifies it down to a scientific construct, which I don't mean to do. But he had this this awakening experience and a near-death experience in war. And and it and it sharpened his desire for something transcendent and he he's he he's now trying to figure out what to do about that but he's only reminded of it every once in a while right because he's the moviegoer he's he's displacing that search onto a screen so to speak which has i think profound implications for modern life yeah Um, for sure and yeah as we talk on zoom and you know, we're all texting in the middle of the show because something's coming up and we got an emergency and right. You know. Yes. Like, how do you, like the question of this part of the novel and I, I haven't finished it. Like, how do you, what is the search for and how do you engage in a search in, in the modern wasteland hmm. and who can, like, what are you even looking for? And yeah, you know, like the, the most alive he feels is when he recognizes there's a search. But what do you do with that if you don't know what you're looking for or don't believe mm-hmm. that there's anything to find? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Tim, can I there, go ahead? There's a um, there's a Catholic, I'll call him kind of an existentialist theologian named Antion Gilson, G-I-L-S-O-N, who I know is informative on Walker Percy's life and writings. And an opening paragraph of one of his books kind of asked this question, which is something to the effect of if a person decides to kind of like pursue the question of life, then the first question that they ask predetermines the end that they arrive at. You know, so if you ask, mm. um, say that, can you say what? that one more time? Can you say yeah. that one more time just for people it, who are driving and all of a sudden we're like, what? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's all four-eyed uh, camel too. A, a person who is determined to ask the question of life, what is life for? The moment that you ask a question, it predetermines the end. An example. The end is my beginning. Right. If you ask the question, what evidences are there for God? Well, then you predetermine that the answer to God's existence is formulated upon you finding evidences, the way that a detective would find evidences of um, a murder or an abduction or something like that. Hmm. And Antion Gilson, and I think Percy would say something similar, it would say, this is the whole, this is like the dilemma. Hmm. The dilemma is if you want to go on a search the moment you ask a specific question is the moment you kind of preordain its end. You kind of preordain where you're going to go. Mm-hmm. And I think this book, part of the reason it's, um, it might fe- it feels to me kind of um, maybe directionless sometimes is because I think that Binks Bowling actually understands this problem. He understands that the moment I ask a specific directed question, well, then the path that answers that question is set out before me. Mm-hmm. And I'm reluctant to do that, not because I don't want to find what's at the end of the road, but because I don't want to pre-pave the road toward a destination that might not actually be the answer that I'm looking for. <laughs> right. One of the dilemmas of like being 
self-aware at all. <laughs> yes. Yes. Absolutely. Which are very modern questions to your point. This is, uh, even the question itself, this is exactly to your point and to the philosopher's point. Even the question itself is firmly, or not so firmly, depending on how you look at it, rooted <laughs> in modernity, which is that every individual soul has its own questions about the meaning of life and that those questions direct then the answers. And that mm. is a very, very new thought in human thought. That's within the last 200 years at the very latest. So I think that, <laughs> again, the question of these 20th century novelists, the, the questions and problems that they're taking on are, are very complex. And it's, I'm, I'm just always so curious and I think it's very brave. Like, I'm curious about what they kind of conclude within the novels. And um, and I think it's a brave thing to do, to take on modern problems with old solutions and and question the problems themselves and the solutions. That's a big, that's a big task and probably a task only for a novel. Um, hmm. And which is why, you know, I love to read them. So. <laughs> In a way, there's this like, third dimension here where mm. um you talk about reading novels where like what you're suggesting there is that part of why we read novels is because we're after something right we're on to yes. something yes um do you find that when you start thinking about like the onto somethingness of the search mm. of your reading life that you are drawn um, out of the experience of it, that it becomes impossible to really be still searching because you're too aware, self-aware of the, 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 the search itself. Maybe this is a little bit too, uh, therapy, too much of a therapy like question, but I sometimes find that like, like if I'm too, you know how people say to be in the moment, like just, man, just enjoy the moment, just be in the moment. As soon as I start thinking about the fact that I'm supposed to be in the moment and I try to be in the moment, I'm so out of the moment but then if I'm not trying to be conscious of being in the moment and enjoying it, then the moment goes by so fast. Mm. And it's like, I really, you start thinking afterwards, man, I really wish I was in the moment in that moment. Like I wish I could have lingered in the moment, but the shame of it all is that time passes. Right. And how you, how you navigate the passing of time in individual moments that you either are enjoying or not enjoying is like one little mini existential crisis after another. Right. And so I find that, you know, the more I'm aware of the fact that I'm trying to search for something when I'm experiencing a piece of art or spending time with my children or whatever, cooking, whatever it is, enjoying a great meal, drinking a great glass of wine, whatever it is, like the more you try to be aware of that, the more you get taken out of it. Right. But then also like, I, do you guys experience this? Yes. Uh, this yeah, just, every everybody experiences this. People who are trying to pay attention, right? People who start podcasts about close reading novels. <laughs> yeah, I, I think, I mean, there's something, there's something really um, profound about that observation, David, that when you're immersed with, uh, and I'm going to tie this into Percy because I think it ties in so, so, neatly i think that what 
Walker Percy would say is he's saying that the scientific method is functionally what you just described when you pull out of the moment. It's stepping back and it's looking at the organism. It's looking at patterns. It's looking at, and it's very self-consciously attempting to recede from the influence of experience. And I think that he says, and that this is a good thing that science has, because it's able to do this, science is capable of, I mean, this is personal for me, it's capable of treating my dad's illness, you know, because it adapts, it it steps backwards. But I think that Percy is going to say something like the immersing yourself in the experience of being with friends, of the search of like unselfconsciously being in the search that the answer that life's answer is actually in that mode, not in the other mode. Mm -hmm. That is an interesting implications. If true for living through say the coronavirus. Yes. Because we can, my novels are intensely practical. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Say more, say more, David. What about coronavirus made you think about that? Well, I mean, you know, you take, take, you said you can take a step back and we can, it can, we we can find solutions, medical solutions, you know, for the virus, new therapies, new treatments, new medicines, all sorts of things like that. But is there, because you, you were you were talking there about you know you could potentially heal your dad's medicine science can right. can find right. a find a treatment for an, for an illness, um, but then if we spend all our time in that mode, then you spend all your time thinking about like you're just trying to dissolve the th- something that could be potentially part of the search you know i mean the the, was like the ascetics the church fathers talk about this too from a slightly different angle they don't use they didn't use the term the search in like the third century (laughs) or the or the middle ages but like the idea of like you can eliminate the thing that is terrorizing you that is harming you and there may be science there may be medicine there may be you know a weapon that can solve that problem for you right but but is there also a, a degree to which that thing that is harming you or terrorizing you or whatever can be part of right. the search, part of some sort of an enlightenment, um, part of opening right. up of your consciousness? And it, sometimes I wonder if like we as a culture, post-enlightenment, we post-industrial revolution too, we spend all our time thinking about how do we make things more comfortable how do we solve these problems that the world is constantly presenting ourselves and the thing about problems in the world and time and all that is that problems continually are going they're going to keep coming up like we're just going to come a couple like we're going to solve one problem only for a new problem to rear its ugly head right yeah um we're going to solve the spanish flu only for the for the coronavirus to show up almost exactly 100 years later um because that's the nature of the universe um Mm -hmm. But are we since? But when we spend all our time figuring out how to solve them, have we as a culture decided that it's not worth thinking about what this thing can actually 
do for us. There's this really interesting, uh, N.T. Wright wrote a new book called Christ and the Coronavirus or something like that, or the Coronavirus for the Christian or something like that. And I was just kind of glancing through it. And at the end, he has this bit that says, it's, it's like, it talks about how we just constantly, how should Christians respond after this is, after this is all over? Is it going to, we think people have been saying things like, oh, we might give more money to the poor. We might be more conscious of um, what people who are living in nursing homes are experiencing, what we need to do to take care of old people and stuff like that. And um, it was just interesting to hear him say, those things might be things we eventually talk about, but they're not really the lessons we should be learning from something like this. Like we can't only learn lessons that science through the solutions of science mm. when things we encounter things in our lives. And post-enlightenment, post-industrial revolution, we are consumed with the lessons that science can teach us yes. to make our lives more easy and more comfortable. But that's not what the search is. The search is mm -hmm. not about how to make our lives more easy and more comfortable and what the lessons of science can teach us. The search is deeper than that. It, right. it's, it's more, and it's much more complex than that. And it's in a way, it's kind of like, what can the things that we're experiencing teach us that finding solutions for them or that science can teach us can't like we have mm. the search is about going beyond that the search is going beyond the celluloid right mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, uh beyond the flickerings of that of um that the technology's offering to us to make our lives more more fun yeah um so that's i don't know that's what made me think about that i kind of yeah. rambled there and stumbled through it but um well because yeah, you can't a, you oh go ahead tim mm -mm, you, you, you. Well, i insist <laughs> i think that that's one of the purposes of novels because you, you can't do anything but stumble through the, the question of the search. And it is, it's inarticulable. And, and that is one of the power, I think, of stories um, to, to show, not tell about the search and um, I think that's what he's looking for in the movies. And, but he says, I, I hear it on page 13, man, this whole page is just, I mean, you should see like the underlines and asterisks and stars. <laughs> yeah. And, and my yeah, I got the same. That um, he sees this beautiful woman is it okay if I read this? Yeah. yeah. So he sees this, this woman uh, on the bus and, you know, his life is full of movies and meaningless or even, well, meaningless is a value judgment, promiscuous sex with beautiful women, right? Um, and uh, so on page 13, he, see, he sees this woman, um, kind of tries to start up a flirtation with her, and then he starts thinking about the search, Um he says, if I were a movie, I would have only to wait. The bus would get lost or the city would be bombed and she and I would tend to the wounded. As it is, I may as well stop thinking about her. I'm going to pause there. That is a very profound philosophical <laughs> contemplation. If I were part yeah. of a story, if I could displace my life and be told the story, then something would intervene to connect me with this person, right? So, but that's not going to happen. Um, it says, then it is that the idea of the search occurs to me. I become absorbed and for a minute or so forget about the girl. 
What is the nature of the search, you ask? Really, it is very simple, at least for a fellow like me, so simple that it is easily (laughs) overlooked. The search is what anyone would undertake if he were not sunk in the everydayness of his own life. This morning, for example, I felt as if I had come to myself on a strange island. And what does such a castaway do? Why? He pokes around the neighborhood and he doesn't miss a trick. To become aware of the possibility of the search is to be onto something. Not to be onto something is to be in despair. The movies are onto the search, but they screw it up. The search always ends in despair. They like to show a fellow coming to himself in a strange place, but what does he do? He takes up with the local librarians. That's about proving to the local children what a nice fellow he is and settles down with a vengeance. In two <laughs> weeks' time, he is so sunk in everydayness that he might just as well be dead. What do you seek? God? You ask with a smile. I hesitate to answer since all other Americans have settled the matter for themselves and to get and to give such an answer would amount to setting myself a goal which everyone else has reached and therefore raising a question in which no one has the slightest interest. Then he goes on to give statistics about who believes in God. um, And then he says down um, one paragraph down, he says, truthfully, it is the fear of exposing my own ignorance, which constrains me from mentioning the object of my search. For to begin with, I cannot even answer this, the simplest and most basic of all questions. Am I, in my search, a hundred miles ahead of my fellow Americans or a hundred miles behind them? That is to say, have 98% of Americans already found what I seek or are they so sunk in everydayness that not even the possibility of a search has occurred to them? That is, I mean, the three of us could talk about this for I don't even know how many hours, right? Mm-hmm. Like this is, and and over you start talking about this, you start telling your own story about your own search and your own questions of like 98% of it, which the statistics are vastly different from him from then till now. If 98% of Americans believe in God and yet they're living this everydayness of despair, who then could God be? Mm-hmm. Right? And that, I think that's such a big Anybody who's actually on the search doesn't want to end up like that, right? But again, the thing that's lost here is the profound uh, sacramental vision for the ordinary life as being a pathway to God. And and he doesn't want that. He's disconnected from that. And that is a question of you know, the 20th century, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I think you're onto something there. Hey, you're onto something. Um, Because... (laughs) I think that line, the search is what anyone would undertake if he were not sunk on the everydayness of his own life. Like this paragraph, this section here, per- tells us what the book is about, or at least what he thinks the book is going to be about. I totally agree. But I would say the thing to look out for is the way his perspective on the notion of everydayness begins to evolve and change. Mm-hmm. Right. Because the, the question then begins to become, can, the ever, can everydayness and the search actually coexist in a way that at the beginning of the book, he does not believe it can. Mm. which is where you're talking about the sacramental vision of life. Right. Um, the question is by the end of the book, can all the um, poking around the neighborhood and not missing a trick actually open his eyes to the sacramental nature of, right. of life? Can meeting a librarian and settling down and raising a right. couple kids and being a fine fellow actually be, be the salvation the of yeah, your soul? Right. 
Right. And so early on in the book, he's giving us all these like deep philosophical theses, which seem to be the guiding principles of the book. And we think we're getting the book is sort of revealing itself to us. But it's what it's really doing is asking us to ponder all these questions about this character and is and it's setting up what his perspective is right now so that we can see how it changes and evolves uh, and deepens. Um, but I think, Tim, you talked about how he has this like ability to like the poet or the doctor's eye for detail yeah and there's that line uh what does the castaway do why he pokes around the neighborhood and he doesn't miss a trick and the fact of the matter is he's right in that instinct that that is the right thing to do when you're on the search but there's like an ultimate conclusion that when he draws the beginning of the book that is a little bit more despairing and dark than what i think he might work towards or hopefully Mm. you know we'll see you were going to say something a minute ago tim what was it i can't remember david would you like to should we spend I'm like really five minutes sorry. just sitting here? That was my fault. Well, Forgive to be fair, he, no, 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 no. he did insist that you talk. I know. I did. But he's always such a gentleman. And, and then really you read a key that. passage. Yep. So I was I am glad because I wanted that passage to be read. That's I think you guys are right. It's kind of the it's a key for that's it. If there's a plot point in the book, that's the initiation of our plot. Mm. Um well, with that, should we wrap it up? We're, we've been here for an hour and a half. Uh, episode's getting a little bit on the long side for, for people. I don't know how much longer my computer's going to survive either. So, um, <laughs> Do you guys uh, have any final thoughts? Heidi, you want to go first? No, I don't have... I mean, I have an endless amount of thoughts. <laughs> there, is, there's no, there is no bottom what's the final, of the thoughts what's of Heidi the, Okay, so there's, you no, can't go to the I bottom and choose the last yes, one? No, but I, I don't have any more. I just wanted to hit that passage. Tim, what about you? Any final thoughts? Any words of advice? Any, uh, you know, maybe you want to talk about Georgia football? I don't know. This is your chance to say anything. I, I just want to reinforce that I think this book is really, really worth the work. If, if you're one of those people who, like me, struggles with this book feeling like you're constantly being kind of like... Um, pulled in a hundred different directions. I think that Walker Percy is really worth your effort. And I think especially if you're a Southerner, I never thought of myself as a Southerner. I never did. And then I moved to the Pacific Northwest and I realized what a Southerner I was. And I think this book really touches on the Southern experience in a way that I think is might even be deeper than Flannery O'Connor. I think Flannery O'Connor is a better storyteller than Walker Percy, but there's something about the kind of um, stoic Southern code that boy, Mm -hmm. he really understands deeply. And I will add, um, I think is really helps Christians, even if you're not a Southerner kind of understand a lot about, what American Protestant Christianity looked like in the 20th century and mm. looks like now. I yeah. think it really addresses those questions. Yeah. It's interesting that you bring up O'Connor because I actually think that there's the line Christ haunted, which mm-hmm. gets used about her work a lot. And I actually think that that phrase is a phrase to keep front and center when you're reading Percy too, because mm-hmm. I think there's a degree to which he is also exploring, well, the degree to which the South is Christ haunted. Um, yeah. I think O'Connor is focusing a lot more on 
um, country people, rural life, small towns. And Percy has this view of um, his characters are often in bigger cities. They're often mm-hmm. young men. There's like, you know, it, they're exploring similar things, but with very unique personal point of views, which I think make them fascinating companions. If you were to, you know, go read, um, uh, say, Wise Blood after you read this, yeah. it's a very interesting double feature. Um, very interesting uh, combo. Maybe a little bit. Um, be a little bit difficult like to just to just wallow in those two books back to back but if you can stomach it uh be, be interesting rat colored car oh, that's a good <laughs> yeah um all right well let's wrap it up uh logan uh as always thank you so much for editing thank you logan we gotta, we're gonna shout you out live on the air so don't take this bit out um heidi you said no final thoughts right you're good no i have no final thoughts All right. Well, with that, then, uh, for Heidi White and for Tim McIntosh, I'm David Kern. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time, happy reading. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.